If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And once you find it, you can stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1. Hopefully a very familiar passage. I, I couldn't count the number of times that I've quoted this text in the worship service. A very important text for us. And I'll read it and I'll give a brief comment before we pray. Verses, verse 1 and then about a third of the way through verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now notice, very briefly, this text encompasses all of redemptive history. That's why we, we read it so many times, because it, it takes all of redemptive history and summarizes the means by which God has spoken. You see, in the first half, long ago, God spoke. And in verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken. While there were many ways used at many different times long ago, God always spoke by, that is, by means of, the prophets. Men who spoke the word of God to other men. And then we come to verse 2. God has spoken by, that is, by means of, His Son. The Word of God incarnate, a man sent to other men. And so the doctrine that I want to lay before you and open up this morning and this evening is this. The normative method by which God communicates truth is the living teacher. Specifically, men set apart and commissioned with the task of taking God's words to other men. Now, before we pray, I want to just explain what my intentions are uh, because we're both going to have a responsibility here. Uh, when I began to compile the material for what would be a topical expository sermon, I realized I had too much for one sermon. So I've stretched it out into two sermons. So this morning and tonight, we're going to be looking at what is essentially one big topical expository sermon, which means we both have extra weight laid on our shoulders. We don't get to sit down and sort of rest in one text of Scripture. We're all going to be in a lot of texts of Scripture this morning and tonight. So that means I'm going to be probably giving a little bit more attention to what I've prepared, but, but more so it means you're going to have to give a little bit more attention to how you hear um, and, and give more attention to the various texts. Like I said, we're going to be in a lot of places. So let's pray that God will bless His Word and that He'll give us what we need to hear. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh Lord, how we take it for granted. Not only that we have a copy, but that You would even speak and reveal Yourself to us. Lord, help us to hear what You have for us. To receive with gladness the implanted Word, with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save our souls Lord, I pray for those who are not here. I pray that you'd bless them where they're worshiping this morning. I pray that you'd be with those who are sick. Lord, heal their bodies as we long to have the church gathered together in full to worship together again. 
Lord, bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, you ever think about how odd of a phrase that is? That I start almost every sermon with something like that, if you have a Bible? As if we lived in the dark ages when people didn't have a Bible? As if it weren't a reality for us in this time and place in the world that every one of us not only has a Bible, most of us have multiple Bibles, all the way down to our children. If you have an infant who was born into this church, your infant has a Bible with their name written in it, a copy of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, the very words of God. We have scriptures, and yet I begin sermons like that very often just as a, as a nicety because I understand and sometimes you forget a Bible or you're not able to hold it in your hand with a, a child in your lap. But I think it's very easy for us to take that for granted, and yet how quickly we forget that having your own copy of the Bible is not common. If you look at, if you look at all of church history and world history, and even now around the world... It's not common for a Christian to have a Bible. It's, it has never been in human history, it's never been normative for the individual Christian to have a copy of the Scriptures that they could take home and read for themselves. The printing press wasn't invented until sometime in the 5th century. And yet somehow, or the 15th century... 15th century. So, but somehow, the church has flourished, even up until that point, and from that point... And yet, again, it's never been normative for the individual Christian to have a Bible. Even now around the world, there are people groups we know where there are Christians and they don't have the Scriptures in their language. They can't have a Bible. One doesn't exist. Therefore, we cannot assume that the primary means by which God has intended for His Word to go forth is through the private study of the Scriptures, or by any other means that requires the individual believer to have their own copy of the Scriptures for their own personal perusal whenever they feel like it. Because historically, and I'm hoping to show you biblically, that's not how it has worked out. That's not what God intended. So we might ask then, what is it? What is the, the primary means by which God has intended for His Word to go forth? And I want to suggest that it is the public preaching and teaching of God's Word by human agents that has always been the primary means ordained of God by which His Word would go forth. I want to try to prove that biblically, and I'll qualify several times as we go, that I would never want anything that I say to somehow sound like I'm negating, pulling away from, or decreasing the responsibility of the individual believer who has a copy of the Scriptures to be in that copy of the Scriptures. Um, we will answer for what we've been given. To whom much has been given, of him much will be required. We're going to answer for that. Because I don't, want to, I don't want to detract from that personal responsibility, but I do want to build this up and show you that from the Scriptures, that it is the public preaching and teaching by a human agent. And the reason I want to do this is because I, I believe that if I can really emphasize to you and get across the importance of the preaching of the Word of God, that should greatly increase 
our awareness of the need and the responsibility that we have to pray for those who do it and pray, and pray for the, the act of it, the time of it, the experience of hearing the Word of God preached. Remember, our topic is the duty of the saints to pray for those who minister the Word. So I, I believe, and this is my line of argumentation and reasoning, I believe that if I can convince you of the, the dire necessity that you have to hear the preaching and to be spiritually affected by the preaching, and then next week show you just how pitiful the vessels are, the human agents are that are preaching this message, at some point it's going to click, well, then I had better pray for these guys. I had better pray for this time. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. Consider the situation that you get a phone call one day, and on the other line is your family doctor, and I don't think this would happen over a phone call, but for the sake of the illustration, you get the, the news that one of your children has, has a, a flesh-eating disease. And that if, apart from something miraculous, in six weeks, your child's going to be dead. Now, I believe that any Bible-believing, God-fearing Christian who believes wholeheartedly in the providence of God in all things, who believes that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, who believes that all things work together for the good of those who love Him, will in that moment physically pour themselves out, prostrate on the floor, and begin to beg and plead that God would spare the life of their child. Why can I assume that? Because in that situation, you are personally convinced by the expertise of your physician that the situation is severe. In that situation, every fiber of your being wants a positive outcome, not a negative outcome. And in that situation, the subject matter is so near and dear to your heart that you can't help but pray. And having a God, and Him, the, the living God being your God, you pray to that God. You seek His help in doing what you really believe you desperately need and only He can do. You pray. And I think it's the same with the preached Word. If you're personally convinced of the severity of your situation, the need that you have, if you are aware of the potential dangers that the Word could go forth every Lord's day and still be unfruitful in, in, in a personal sense, if you truly desire with every fiber of your being that this, a spiritual work would be done in your heart, and if the subject matter that's being preached is near and dear to, you, to your heart, then you're going to pray. You're going to seek God's help in doing what you desperately need Him to do and what you really believe only He can do. So I want to press this issue using four lines of biblical evidence, beginning very generally, and then we're going to kind of focus it down this evening more specifically. We'll begin with a brief consideration of the Word of God in general, and then we'll look at the need for and appearance of the preacher, Thirdly, we'll look at the role of the preached word in the gospel dispensation or age, gospel age, that word dispensation I was sort of has been abused. And then lastly, we'll look at the role of the preached word in the church. And we'll not cover all that this morning. So first, I want us to consider just the word of God in general. If, we're, if we are going to understand the necessity 
of the preached word, we have to begin with, with a, a, an understanding of what underlies, we might say, the foundational underpinning of the concept of a word of God. Because any true preaching is merely a proclamation or a declaration, a, a heralding of God's Word and the application of that Word to the present lives of the hearers. And so we might ask when we begin to talk about the preaching of the Word of God, we could start with questions like this. Why is there a Word of God? Why? Why isn't it something else? Why is there, why, why did, why is there not another method? Why is there preaching? Is that just something that some men said, hey, this seems to work pretty good? I don't think so. Like good reformed boys and girls, we start with the nature of God in everything. That's where we begin. So consider this God that we worship, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit. He has eternally existed in those three distinct persons, and yet He is, as one divine essence, a personal God. And by that I don't mean He's going to get into your business. He will. And he does. What I mean is he has personhood. And, and because he has personhood, he is, he has a, we could say God is an objective individual who has his own substance. He has his own properties that are exclusive only to him. I am a person. I have properties that are, that are only me. Nobody else can say they're me. And I can't say I'm you. That's, that's one of the, the properties of being a person, not a human, but a person. And one pr property of God's personhood, and even ours, is self-awareness. God knows that He is. God knows what He is. He knows who He is. He knows Himself. We, we share that with Him. We know that we are. Compare that to a blade of grass doesn't know that it is, doesn't know what it is, doesn't know who it is. It doesn't have personhood, but God does. The difference between God's personhood and our personhood or God's self-consciousness and our self-consciousness is that His self-consciousness is absolutely perfect, absolutely eternal, immutable, unchanging, and infinite. To prove this, we could go to all of the texts in the Scripture where God begins by saying, I am dot, dot, dot. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Over and over, especially in, the, in that section in Isaiah, he, he's just declaring who He is because He knows who He is. Also, this triune God of the Bible is by nature a self-revealer. In other words, He has this perfect self-consciousness, this, this perfect eternal awareness of who He is and what He is, and it can't go unnoticed. He does declare who He is. He has eternally revealed Himself. Since it is in the nature of God to reveal Himself, and He is also independent and self-existent, God doesn't need anything else beside Himself to reveal Himself. I, I might try to reveal myself with, with the clothing that I wear or the hairstyle. We look at people, we can look at a hairstyle or a clothing... Um, get up and we could say, well, I believe that person is trying to let me know something about themselves. And they could change all of that and then they'd try to declare something else about themselves. God doesn't need to put on anything or do anything. He is eternally self-declaring. It's by His own self-revealing Word 
that God reveals who He is. That, that word, His, His divine self-revelation, is God. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God eternally. Who was God revealing Himself to in eternity? Himself. He was just delighting in eternal self-revelation of Himself. So, we might ask, how does God's Word reveal God? What does it do to reveal God? And, and historically, this has been broken up into two categories. He, he reveals Himself generally. We call that general revelation. And He calls Himself especially in special revelation. We'll begin with general revelation because I'm, I'm probably... Some of you probably got like a little red light that's beginning to warm up when I just said that God by His Word reveals Himself in general revelation. Our confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 1, "...the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God so as to leave men inexcusable." In general revelation, God reveals Himself through the things that are created. And so you object and you say, well, you just said that God doesn't need anything else beside Himself to reveal Himself. And I'd say, first, yes, He doesn't need creation to reveal Himself. But secondly, it is through the Word itself that general revelation comes into existence. Consider the power and place of God's Word in creation. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. 2 Peter 3.5 The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now whenever you hear... Water there, you should immediately go back to Genesis 1 and verse 2 where we have this, this creation that is without form and void and the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. In other words, in the very beginning, the first creation, you have Word and Spirit working together to take this void, formless mass, give it life and, and beautify it and, and bring it to the, the condition where God would say, it's good. Just like He does with us in the new creature. The Word and the Spirit gives life and the Word and the Spirit brings us to the image of Christ Amen. in sanctification. So God's Word is the means by which He created all things in general revelation. And God reveals Himself in the things that He created. Why did He create? To reveal Himself. So we could say, why did God create using the Word of God which has as its primary function to reveal God... Well, the answer is to reveal God. Psalm 19, a classic text, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. They are not passive. They are declaring and proclaiming. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's declaring and proclaiming God constantly. Romans 1, 19 and 20. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Clearly perceived by whom? By men. God does not need creation to reveal Himself, but He is using creation to reveal Himself to men. And He done that, He created by His Word. So even in general revelation, God, by His Word, is revealing Himself. But then we come even more specifically to special revelation. Back to the confession, it says, I, It pleased the Lord to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto His church. And He done this to give the knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. Special revelation is God revealing Himself by His Word, especially on the, the matters of revealing who He is, revealing who man is, and revealing the means of salvation. Not only does God reveal Himself in creation, but there we see He reveals Himself to creation. Genesis 1.28, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Verse 29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God said, God said, God commanded, saying. God spoke directly to Adam and Eve in special revelation. This is your job. This is what I expect. Here is... Here are the rules. It's also interesting at this point to note Genesis 3.8 where it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Now think about that. And I ask my children this. How did, why didn't Adam and Eve say to each other, you hear that? Do you think that's a giraffe or a rhinoceros? Or maybe a tiger. It doesn't say they heard the sound of just something. They heard the sound of the Lord God. They knew that sound. Because it's assumed that God was accustomed to come and walk with them. And they knew His distinct sound. He walked with them and talked with them. Spoke with them. Now, we know God does not have a body. He's spirit. So we might ask just kind of looking forward, which person of the Godhead might walk in a garden and make a sound with his physical footsteps that they could hear and then talk with Adam and Eve? It would only be the second person of the Godhead who is the image of the invisible God, also known as the eternal Word. God revealing Himself to His creatures. So here's the point. From eternity, God is a speaking God, a self-revealing God with a Word who is God that perfectly describes and shows forth who He is. It's of the very nature of God to speak. He can't not speak, to say it reverently. That's, it's just who He is. Just like we saw in, in the psalm, salvation. God is a God of salvation. He can't not save. That's who He is. Here He cannot speak. He can't not reveal Himself by His Word. And from the very beginning of creation, it was God's practice to speak directly to His creatures and even reveal Himself in some living physical manifestation to them. Whether it looked like a man just like them, the Scriptures don't say. 
But the Word of God, I want you to see, is essential to His Godness. It's not, it's not an addition. It's not that we have this perfect and complete God and, and oh, by the way, He also talks sometimes. No, that's, this is who He is. He's a self-declaring God. And so then preaching, which is the declaration of the Word of God, is rooted in His Godness. We get it from the nature of God. It's deduced practically and exegetically from who God is. So when folks begin to decry preaching, when folks begin to shy away from preaching, when folks begin to cower away from bold declarations and assertions of who God is, it's not because they have found a more palatable scheme that is equally as effective as preaching. It's because they have taken issue with the very nature of God. They don't like Him. And we see that from Scripture. Men, fallen men, in their sin, don't like it when God shows up and begins to declare Himself. That's the last thing they want. So I wonder if you take issue with preaching like that. Are there times... In a sermon, as, as, much as, you, as much as you profess to love the Word of God and love the church, are there times when the preaching comes, it's being declared in truth, and then it begins to be applied, and there's just something inside of you that just kind of squirms. And you, you think, oh, I just... Your immediate reaction is, well, I'm just not so sure that's what it means. You may immediately begin to question rather than saying, God speaks, and I need to hear, then you ought to pray that God would change your heart with regard to preaching, the preaching of His Word. When men twist preaching and make it something that it's not, or distort, distort the Scriptures in order to squeeze out a sermon that's not really there, it's because they've taken issue with the God who reveals Himself in His Word. They don't like what He has to say. It's, it's not good enough that He's revealed Himself in His Word. So let's, let's be more creative. Let me, in my creativity, come and, and hover over this void and formless mass of ink on paper and see if I can't beautify it a little bit better than God has. That's not true preaching. They've taken issue with God. True preaching simply explains and applies the Scriptures and trusts the Spirit to make the application effectual. And as hearers of the Word, that's another point of prayer, we need to pray that that's what happens. That God's Word comes and the Spirit applies it and as uncomfortable as it might be, He makes it effectual. So preaching itself is rooted in the nature of God Himself as self-revealer. Heading number two... Then, the need and appearance of the preacher. So in Genesis 1 to 3, God is the only preacher. God is the one speaking. He spoke directly to and with our first parents. So how did we go from that, God walking and talking with His creatures, to the modern concept of preaching? Of course, we know that when Adam and Eve sinned, that radically changed the way that God dealt with His creatures. Sin entered the world and death through sin. And so all mankind is now alienated from God. God has not changed. Man has changed. And so the very nature of God, unchangeable, and now the fallen nature of man are at odds. 
God cannot in His holiness come and just carry on close communion with men lest they die. But at the same time, He is still the self-revealing God who desires to reveal Himself to His creatures. And so He does this by using what this term I've borrowed. He does this by using the living preacher. The living preacher. Not to say that God is not alive, but what I mean is men... A live man talking to other men, speaking to other men on behalf of God. A living vessel as opposed to other methods of revelation. And I'll let my kids show you the examples I gave that of options that God might have chosen for us to communicate with one another because it was humorous. But why has God chosen this means of a living man, a living preacher? Hebrews 1.1 again, long ago at many times. And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. A lot of people might get hung up on the many times and many ways, but ultimately it comes down to, He spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Men selected, chosen to go and speak to other men. Prior to the establishment of what we might call the commonwealth of Israel, we have Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Jude 14 says that he prophesied. He was a preacher. He was alive when Adam was alive. They were alive together. And Enoch was a preacher. We have his sermon, actually, in Jude 14 and 15. It's a good sermon. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. As his sermon. A man speaking to other men. He's warning them, your deeds are ungodly. Your deeds are contrary to the Creator. And by the way, the Creator is not going to put up with the way you guys are acting. He's, he's, not, he's not feeling well about what's happening here. That was his sermon. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a herald of righteousness, a karuks, a preacher. He, he preached righteousness. Probably a very similar sermon to Enoch. God has a holy standard. You guys are not meeting the standard. God's not happy about what you're doing. And judgment is coming. That was the, the message. A preacher of righteousness. A man preaching to other men. In Genesis chapter 18 verse 19. Speaking of Abraham. God says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's Abraham's job. I picked him. Here's his job. Teach your family. Teach your household righteousness and justice. The, the righteous standard of God, how to, how to worship God rightly, how to love God rightly, and how to treat others. God, from the very beginning, began to make use of living teachers, teaching other people. Now, just ask yourself, do you, do you think there's a reason for that? Does God give us the impression in His Word that he, that he has purposes in everything that He does? Of course. In the nation of Israel, we have Moses. In Exodus 18, 15, He said, The people come to Me to inquire of God. I make known or make them know the statutes of God and His laws. He eventually incorporated other men, but this was His job, a living teacher. At Mount Sinai, God comes down. The people hear His voice. They tremble for their lives, and yet they saw no form. It was sort of a reminder. God was coming to remind His creatures once again, 
it, it, I can't just come down and talk to you. It's not going to work. You don't want it. It won't happen. And so he gives his law to Moses, and Moses write down, writes down the word, but then he also is given the duty of instructing the people. It would have required no more effort at the foot of Mount Sinai, no more effort on God's part to, to put together and produce a beautiful leather-bound copy of the law for every individual Israelite at the foot of that mountain than it did for him to speak and make that mountain shake. No more effort. And yet he did not choose that means. He chose the living teacher, a man like them who would give the words of God to them. Deuteronomy 6, on the plains of Moab, Moses is going to preach the law again and he prefaces his sermon by saying to the fathers of the families concerning the laws of God, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So not only was Moses a teacher, but every father in the household was to also take the, the laws of God and teach them in their own families. And you can imagine that a father could bring a, a specific application in the home with far more detail and precision than Moses could. It wasn't in those homes. It was important. God saw it important that everybody get the word and then every individual get the word applied in, in, in specific ways. And that didn't absolve Moses of his role. It wasn't, it, wasn't say, well, it wasn't to say, all right, fathers, you do that. And Moses said, I guess my job here is done. No, Moses continued to lead and to preach. We have the institutions of the offices of prophet and priest. I'll read a longer passage here from Deuteronomy 18. We know it. Beginning at verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just and notice, notice the reasoning. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. In other words, what you were getting at is, we need it to come by another means. Send somebody that we can relate with. And he says, God, God has granted that. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Because of the nature of God and the limitations of men, God ordained the office of a prophet who would speak God's word to the people and who was to be revered and attended as if God Himself were speaking. God gave living teachers who could communicate His Word to people from among their brothers. We also have the priests. Now we know that the primary role of the priest was the, the worship, the ordinances of the tabernacle and the temple. But we also learn that the priests were teachers. 2 Chronicles 15.3 says, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Now notice the, the correlation there. Without God, without teaching, without law. These men were to teach. And when there was no teacher, things began to crumble. Of the offices of Levites, priests, other officials in chapter 17 of Second Chronicles, verse 9, he says that they taught in Judah having the book of the law of the Lord with them. Offices of living teachers throughout Israel. 
the nation. There's even a promise in Jeremiah 3.15. God says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and with understanding. When wicked shepherds began, be, began to come in and, and lead people astray, God makes this new covenant promise. I'm going to give you shepherds who don't do that. I'm going to give you good shepherds who will lead you. Not shepherds who are going to sit and merely, and again, not to negate the usefulness and the blessing of a copy of the Scriptures. But he doesn't say, I'm going to give you men who are really crafty at putting together leather-bound volumes so that everybody can have one. Shepherds who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Following the exile into Babylon, a remnant returns and we see this practice continued. Except now, there's even more of a necessity. Another, another aspect is... is brought into play. Nehemiah 8.8 8 says that they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You see, in 70 years of captivity, the Hebrew tongue had, had all but disappeared. And so when you get out the Hebrew Bible and begin to read, the people are saying, we, we, we're not real clear on what's, what's happening here. And so, they would read, they would interpret it. Here's what it means in in the Chaldee tongue or whatever the language might be. Here's what it means. Here's the sense of it. Here's how to apply it. And they had men who would go out amongst the congregation and give the sense of the Word. The Word of God brought by living preachers and teachers to living recipients. In Acts chapter 13 verse 27 it says that the utterances of the prophets are read every Sabbath. Acts 15, 21, From ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim Him, for He is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Probably in the intertestamental period, the synagogue system was established. There was no regular uh, revelation from God. God was, was, was not giving any more word through prophets. And so they had built this synagogue system where in every town, every city, there was a synagogue where the people of God would come together and somebody would open up the law, a copy that they had there, and begin to proclaim, here's the words of God. The people themselves sought out living teachers. Now, it wasn't always a good outcome, just like in our day. It's not, it's not a guarantee that it's going to be a, a great... Uh, the great fruit is going to be born through that process, but that was their natural inclination. We need some people to teach us. So, why is, at this point, why is the living preacher so vital in, in God's scheme of redemption? Well, we've seen the nature of God. He's revealer. He will have His creatures know their Creator. He has a word by which He reveals Himself, and yet He's unwilling to communicate that immediately to men because we'll die if He just comes down. The spiritual condition of men, we're unable to learn of God. We're obstinate in our rebellion against God. We don't want to have anything to do with God. We can't, we're, we're unable to receive direct communication in our sin like Adam and Eve. So there's the nature of God, the spiritual condition of man. I want you to consider also just our natural condition. Just a, we're human beings. Now this might seem like a light thing, but remember, everything that God has done has a purpose behind it. There's a reason. Think about your nature as a human being. We were created with eyes and ears and mouths and tongues and vocal cords and eardrums. Why? 
We're made to communicate through verbal expression. We're made, our eyes are on the front of our faces, the front of our heads, and our ears are aimed this way so that we hear the thing we're looking at. Not like a basset hound, you know, their ears are really long. They're not really used for hearing all that much. They're used for stirring up the smell on the ground as they sniff. But our ears are made to hear what we're looking at. We're made to give and receive verbal communication. Why? Because we're made in the image of a God who expresses Himself by His Word. We talked about effectual calling. The outward call of the gospel must come to ears and enter into the mind and our brains have to be able to reason and consider and, and weigh out the gospel. God created, this, created us this way. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created by Christ and for Christ. By the Word and for the Word. We were made for this verbal communication to receive the revelation of God in specific ways. So that's why I would argue the institution of the, the office of the elder and the, the duty, the task of laboring in the Word and doctrine is built on or associated with the very nature of an unchanging, self-revealing God who descends in mercy on undeserving sinners. And this is not to, to elevate men. I want to clarify. Yes, we, Westerners, Americans, we have the written Word. And again, I don't want to negate that. But the Word merely written has never been the primary means for God's people to receive God's Word. So without neglecting our responsibility or reducing the importance of personal study in God's Word, it would be absolutely unbiblical to assume that your personal study can replace the preaching of God's Word. Even further, it would be contrary to Scripture and the historical pattern to even elevate your personal studies above the corporate hearing of the preached Word. Now, I'm going to go back to what I said a couple weeks ago. This doesn't mean that there's no individual aspect to this. It is individual. It's just not private. It's personal, but not private. We're, we're all going to glory together. Heaven is going to be all of us together in the presence of the living Word. So, what do we find to be the case when we now begin to make the crossover from the old covenant age or dispensation into the new covenant? Here's the third heading. The role of the preached Word in the gospel age. What we know, God has not changed we know that man in his fallen condition has not changed, and yet God continues to make the advance into the fullness of self-revelation in the gospel age. And so the very first thing that we meet with in the New Testament is what we've already read, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The very self-revelation of God took on flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and in that incarnate state, Jesus Christ literally exegeted God. He opened Him up and explained, revealed God to men in living form. Or, 
as we read at the beginning, Hebrews 1-2, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. A living revelation of God to living men. Because we in our sinful condition were unable to approach God. We can't come into His presence and learn of Him in ourselves. But in mercy, God sent His Son, He sent His Word to reveal Himself to us. So the Word was made flesh, and we know that Christ Himself was a preacher, a living teacher who proclaimed truth to living men. In Luke chapter 4, what we typically consider to be the inauguration of His ministry, He reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It's preach the gospel. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And notice Luke's comment. And he rolled up a scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Just wondering, what will he say? What comment will he give? I wonder, wonder which rabbi he will quote this week. And he began to say to them today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Later on in the chapter, Luke 4.44 says, He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Matthew 9.35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was a preacher. He is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of His Father's nature. In Him all the fullness of the Godhead is pleased to dwell bodily. In the face of Jesus Christ we have the glory of God shining and He preached. Why? Because He's revealing to us a God who is a preaching God, a self-revealing God. A God who in mercy condescends to sinners. In tenderness accommodates our weakness. He didn't say, well, you really got yourself in a mess now. I sure hope you figure it out. See what you can do. He didn't. He accommodates our weakness. In providence, He designed us to see and to hear and to speak so that we might know Him as the self-revealing God who sends preachers and who sent His Son. In wisdom, he has, He's using the means most suited to our nature because we've got eyes and ears and eyebrows. I tried this with my children. I said, what do you think if I look at you like this? And they said, you're angry. And I said, but what about this? And they said, you're happy. I said, who comes up with that? Your eyebrows are not to keep sweat out of your eyes only. So we can see expressions. We can take the written word and we can see from a living face somebody bringing the word of a living God to us. So might we follow the example of those in the synagogue? They didn't know what they were looking at. Luke 4.20, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. If we're going to have a high view of the preaching of the Word of God, really the only line of reasoning we need is this. 
Fix your eyes on Jesus of Nazareth, God's only son. He was a preacher. That occupation just went right to the top. When Moses disputed with God about his ability to speak to Pharaoh on God's behalf, God chose Aaron to be the spokesman because in, Hebrew, or in Exodus 4.14, I know, this is what God said, I know that he can speak well. Not, I know that he can speak good. I know that he can speak well. Commenting on that text, Gardner Springs says, It would seem, in the judgment of infinite wisdom, truth must be spoken and well spoken in order to have its proper effect. Now let's fix our eyes on him. What did Mark say of our Lord? Mark 12, 37. The great throng heard him gladly. Matthew 7, 28 and 29, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Or my favorite, John 7, 36, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one. Because he was anointed to preach, he was devoted to preach, he believed so adamantly in the preaching of the gospel that he just gave himself to it. And that's what he did. So then ought we not to see the preaching of the Word of God as a vitally important piece of our spiritual growth? It's not secondary. If for no other reason than, hey, Jesus thought it was cool, Jesus was into preaching, maybe it's a big deal. The Lord himself was a preacher. So then in conclusion, let's, let's apply some of this just by way of questions because I want, I want a lot of the application to come later. Why should you pre pray for the ministry of the Word? Because the ministry of the Word is important. Well, how do we know that it's important? Because A, it's rooted in the nature of God Himself. B, it's been the primary means of disseminating God's Word from the very beginning throughout history. And C, Jesus Christ, God's own Son, was a preacher. And while I do believe that we ought to give honor to whom honor is due, I don't want you to leave with a high view of preachers, except one, Christ. That's, that's, not, that's not the goal. I want you to consider your heart. Do you think that you have a proper perspective on preaching? Or have you had a proper perspective on preaching? Have you thought lightly about the preaching of the Word of God because, and I quote, I can listen to it online later. I'll get it later. Have you thought lightly of the preached Word? How, what are some evidences that you might think lightly of the preaching of the Word? Your mind constantly wandering through the preaching. That shows it's not important to you. The problem is not that you can't focus. The problem is that you have a great ability to focus on everything else. That's, that's your fault, by the way. That, that sermon might be coming up at some point. It's in here. But that's your fault. Do you think lightly of the preached Word? One evidence would be late Saturday nights that lead to drowsy listening on Sunday morning. If something important's coming up, you're getting ready for it. You're thinking about it, preparing for it. Does it bother you when providence hinders you from being present during the preaching of the Word? Not like, 
yeah, we really hate, hated we couldn't be there. But I mean really, in your heart. I, I miss the, the Word, the preaching of the Word. Not the preacher, but the preaching of the Word. Then pray that God would help you see its benefits. These are prayer points. Pray that God would bless you specifically through the preaching of the Word. Pray that the Spirit would help you to be especially sensitive so that you notice the blessing. Like the men on the road, of, road to Emmaus. Hey man, did your heart not burn within you? My heart was burning. They noticed it. They felt it. Some of you probably felt that this morning. I know I did. In, in the call to worship, I was, I was into it. I was thanking God that I'm, I'm being led to worship. Pray for these things. It, it's not just, well, I hope it happens. You know, God's sovereign. No, pray that He'll bless the preaching of His Word. If you have children, and this is, this is where we're, we're all learning, do they know how important preaching is? Hopefully the point is at some point your children learn preaching's important. Do they know that this time, right here, this hour, it's not simply sit still and be quiet time. It's be careful how you hear time. So we have to be careful. And, and, and I'm as guilty as anybody of, of you know, handing out something to do. Give all the kids a Rubik's Cube so they'll be quiet. No, it's, the point is not just be quiet. The point is be quiet and pay attention and learn and listen to the preaching. Do they see, do your children see mom and dad giving their attention to preaching? Do they see mom and dad preparing for the preaching? Do they hear things like, we've got to get ready and get in the bed early. We're going to church tomorrow. We need to be able to listen to the preaching. See, that's how they, they learn over time. Mom and dad, they, they, there's a lot of importance, a lot of weight laid on this preaching thing. Or do they know and our, our kids can do this. I've, I've experienced it. They, they know how to do this. Do they know or are they learning to let out a few whimpers so that they can be whisked into another room? So that they can have free time in another room. And again, sometimes you've got to take them out and spank them. We've, we've, I would refer you to the sermon on child discipline. But I'm saying our children will learn very quickly. Let out a few whimpers and I am released from the excruciating pain of having to listen to the Word of God proclaimed. I don't have to sit as still if I just pretend like I'm upset or, or cry. Make mention of going to the restroom so that they can take ten minutes and come back into the room because they don't want to sit still. They learn how to do this. If mom and dad are know and place a high priority on preaching, mom and dad say, now's your time to use the restroom. When service starts, you don't move. You're not moving. It's, it will wipe up a wet pew after the service if we have to. But God's Word's going forth. Listen, you never know when your children are going to receive the new heart from the effectual call of God. If they're not hearing the Word, they're not going to hear it. So we give attention to it. See, these types of little practical matters, and we have to use wisdom in this. But these practical matters perhaps are things you've never considered. We're all young parents. Pray. Here's another prayer point. Pray that the Lord would give you biblical wisdom with regard to the preaching of the Word of God. So we'll pick up there this evening. But for now, let's, let's go to the Lord and, and pray and bring these things to His, His presence. 
Preaching was an important duty in the ministry of Christ, but it wasn't all that he did, as you know. He came and he was anointed to preach, but he was also sent to lay down his life as an atonement for the sins of his people. And, and these lines sort of cross Christ's ministry as a preacher and the importance of preaching and then the, the apex of Christ's life, which was his work on the cross. When Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ crucified. The, the preaching finds its preeminence in the message of the cross. Christ publicly portrayed as crucified through the preaching of the gospel is a means of grace. And then in addition to that, we have the Lord's Supper, where we as an entire congregation proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. A vitally important means of grace. It reminds us that the Word comes, and the Word very often is sharp and rebuking and reproving and correcting, and, and where we tend to shy away and cower from our Lord, He says, no, now come, now come near. You've, you've heard it. Now there's grace. So come dine with me. And this reminds us that those who persevere will dine with Him in glory. But at the same time, just like with the preaching, we have to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. We examine ourselves. We hopefully in our hearts and in our minds consecrate the cup and the bread, distinguishing them from common use. It's not just bread. We might look at the plate and say, that looks like bread that somebody just tore up into little pieces. But it's not normal because it's a, a means that God has given for His church to meditate, to use in meditation upon the body and blood of the Lord shed on the cross. So do that. As the elements are passed, think of your sins. Think of God offended, sinners condemned, and yet Christ coming and entering into our place as our substitute. And consider, meditate on the pleased face of the Father as He receives the work, the offering of His Son, and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.